listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Test, test, test. Can you hear me? Good? All right. Well, good morning once again, and uh, welcome back to our series on the story where we're walking through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we're seeing that this whole thing that we call the Bible is connected. These aren't just separate little stories, but in fact, there's a single continuous narrative thread that weaves its way through all of Scripture. Now, the Bible is different from other stories. It's not a, not a myth. It's not a legend. It's a true story. It's, it's the one overarching story of, of all humanity. We, you maybe have heard the word meta-narrative. That's a fancy way to say overarching story. And this is God's story, and He's telling it, and yet we find our part in God's story as well. So we've been walking through this, this whole thing. We've been following along with Israel as they've made their way from the Exodus out into the Promised Land, and we've been following along with them specifically during the period of the Judges lately, where we had these, these temporary rulers. Do you remember the Judges? The book of Judges in the Bible has some of the most... Uh, Hollywood ripe material for a movie, I would say. So you get people like, uh, like Samson and Gideon and uh, Deborah and uh, Barak and all of these wonderful, interesting, fascinating characters. But Judges is not a happy book because these judges get raised up. God raises up the judges to rescue His people, Israel. The people repent, and then they fall into sin all over again. God raises up another judge, right? And so it's just this temporary kind of rulership. But the people want more than that. They want more than just a temporary ruler. They want a king. And we're going to discover today that there was a problem with this because their motives in asking for a king were far from pure. So I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 10. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 10, and this is in chapter 10 of the story. Here's how it goes. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, So they are doing to you. 
Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Jumping ahead to verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So I was reading through the text this week, which I know every single one of you did your homework and you all read, every single person here read every single page of the story, right? Yes, I'm seeing a lot of nods. We'll go with that. Okay. Uh, Well, I felt like I was tracking, right? Israel, they had all these judges like Samson, Gideon, and Deborah. Some are good, some are bad. Usually it's a mix, but it's not a good long-term solution because they're just temporary, right? If you're going to be the nation that that God promised you're going to be, you need something more permanent, right? You need a king. Now, this seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? In fact, the reality is that God had even promised that He would give them a king. Here's what He says to Abraham in in Genesis 17.6. He said, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. This is God talking to Abraham. He says, yes, you are going to have a king. So what's going on here? What's the deal? What's the problem? Well, the issue wasn't the kingship or even their request. The problem was their motivation. The problem was the reason that they wanted this king in the first place. See, why did they want this king? They wanted this king so that they would be like all of the other nations around them and so that this king could go out and fight their battles for them. Here's the problem with that. Israel already had a king, a king named Yahweh. So when they ask for an earthly king, what they're doing is rejecting him as their king. Martin Luther explains it like this. This is helpful. He says, their sin was not their desire to have a king, but rather that they set their trust. See that key word there? They set their trust on human help and government when they should have trusted in God alone. See, it's a heart issue, right? It's a question of where Israel is placing its trust and security. Human beings are security-seeking creatures. Aren't we? I think that's a fair statement to say. We crave security. We want to know that we're going to be cared for, that we don't have to fear where we're going to find food and water for the day, where we're going to shelter for the night. I mean, you think about this and like every decision that we make is motivated by a desire to maximize our security. I mean, job-related decisions, family-related decisions, moving decisions, marriage, all of it. We want to know that we're going to be okay, right? We want to know that we're going to be provided for, that our futures are going to be secure. That's a very human longing and human desire, and there's nothing wrong with it, in fact. 
God knows we are security-seeking creatures. Like, we crave security. Here's the problem. We are prone to seek security in the wrong things. Things that let us down. And one of the wrong places that we locate our security, that the Israelites located their security, the place where where they looked to make everything in the world okay, was earthly government and politics. That was the Israelites' struggle, and it's our struggle too. So let's talk politics, guys because this is not controversial at all. Anybody else like sweating a little bit? Just me? All right then, let's keep moving. Now before we continue, let me be abundantly clear on this. I love being an American. I love America. Man, I am a proud American citizen. If you don't believe me, I have a very embarrassing picture I can show you of me riding on a hay rack wearing an Uncle Sam hat that goes about three feet above my head. We can, we can dig that out later. But I like being an American for so many reasons. Guys, we are the country that invented baseball, okay? Can we just pause for a moment to revel in that fact? Baseball. We also invented foot-long hot dogs, the Big Mac, Chicago-style pizza. Can I get an Amen. I see that hand, I see that hand. Guys, we are a rich, deep-fried people with extra cheese on the side. I also have two grandpas who served in the military. I had kind of a rough year this last year. I lost both my grandpas. Loved them both dearly. Both of them served in the military. Grandpa Kermit, he was on my dad's side. He was a Marine who spent times overseas in World War II in Korea, I think primarily as a truck driver. I remember him telling this story about driving on top of the Great Wall of China. And I'm like, man, I, my childhood is, is, is nothing compared to that. My other grandpa, we called him Grandpa Red. He had a shock of, of red hair. He served with the army in the Korean War. And an interesting story, I was talking to my mom about this. He actually volunteered to serve in someone else's place in Korea because what they did was they had all these new recruits and they lined them up. They numbered them off, one, two, one, two, one, two, and whatever number it was was sent overseas and the others were allowed to stay. My grandpa was supposed to stay. The guy next to him got counted off. He was supposed to go over to Korea. When this happened, he started to cry. He broke down, was in tears, and didn't want to go because he said, I have a family. Long story short, my grandpa volunteered to serve in his place. So he wasn't supposed to be over there to begin with. He was a, uh, Grandpa Red was a, a fourth, they call a forward observer in the military, so he would go in front of the front lines even to scope out enemy activity to, to see what was, what was going on. And he saw some stuff, so he, he didn't talk about it a lot. I know there were times he came back and he had blood on his hands, he didn't know, I don't think, where it, it came from. But the truth is that we enjoy freedoms here in this country that others can really only dream about. And we are immensely blessed by the sacrifices of so many. And, and I imagine many of you have similar stories, similar personal connections, right? So I'm personally proud to be an American, and you should be too. That being said, Christians treat the political realm categorically different than non-Christians. What do I mean by that? 
Well, here's the default that we as human beings drift toward, security-seeking creatures that we are. We are prone to make a religion out of earthly government. You see, our political discourse, whether we're talking about our country or a candidate or a political party or a particular stance or a law, whatever, it often takes on such a zealous fervor that it functionally becomes a religion of its own. There's even a term used to describe this. It's called civil religion. Has anybody here heard of this term before? Civil religion. It happens when, as one author puts it, Christians ascribe to the central government a sense of ultimacy. We might use the word eternity as a synonym for that. Ascribe to the central government a sense of ultimacy and approach it as if ultimate moral and religious issues were at stake. Now, civil religion isn't out there in the sense that we now worship at, there are people that worship at the church of the red, white, and blue. It's not like that. It happens in more subtle ways. And one clue that this is happening is when our political views and moral stances become increasingly combative, as if the fate of the world hangs in the balance of the next presidential election or the latest law. And when anxiety permeates our political discourse, that's a sign that we're not trusting God. That we, like the Israelites, are saying, give us a king like all the other nations around us because that, that'll make everything right, that then it'll be okay. The United States of America is kind of unique from the rest of the world in this. We have a really unique history, and we've always used religious language to describe it. Here's just one example. I want to show you this picture here. When presidents died, this, this sort of painting, it, it was pretty common to, to make these paintings that essentially immortalized them. So you can see here, this is, this is President Lincoln, right? This is how the, the painting is called the apotheosis of Abraham Lincoln, the reward of the just. And the word apotheosis means the act of making someone a god. See, Lincoln is pictured as a kind of savior here. Here's how a couple of different sources describe this painting. The color lithograph is the apotheosis of Abraham Lincoln as he is carried into heaven by two winged angels under a ray of light. Lincoln is wearing a white robe draped with a blue sash and is resting on a cushion of clouds atop his open tomb as he rises Christ-like from the grave. Like I said, this is a pretty common thing. There's actually a similar one of George Washington on the rotunda in the U.S. Capitol building. Do you see anything problematic about this? Lincoln isn't Jesus. You see, when God and country become conflated, politicians and political parties get painted as saviors. See, if only we had this law or elect this candidate or get this party in power, then everything will be okay. All our problems will be solved. Then I can have some real peace of mind. But what does that reveal about where we're placing our security? And in case you're thinking, well, right, Pastor, but this was 1865. We've kind of moved beyond that, right? We've advanced. The data tells a different story. 
In his 2019 book, Seculosity, Dave Zoll says this. Listen to this. He says, studies indicate that religious identity now follows political affiliation rather than vice versa, meaning that for more and more people, political convictions shape their religious beliefs and not the other way around. Then he cites a, a number of sources, a, number of, a bunch of data that, that confirms this. So how do we know that we're doing this? How do I know when I'm seeking security in the wrong things? Well, here are just a few self-diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Number one, does my level of anxiety fluctuate based on who is in power? Does my sense of unrest increase or decrease based on who's at the White House? Is my peace stolen? That's question number one. Number two, do my moral stances conveniently and consistently align with the platform of any one political party? See, if our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus, there should always be some tension between His values and the value systems of a sinful world, whether it's those of the Republicans or the Democrats or the American Vegeta Vegetarian Party. That's an actual party, by the way. You can look it up. I'm not a member, in case you're wondering. Um, but you see what I'm saying is they will never, our values will never perfectly align. In fact, if we ever do feel perfectly at home with the values of any one party or candidate, that's a red flag. We're not supposed to feel at home because kingdom values cut against human values. In a 2018 article for Christianity Today, Bronwyn Lee makes this statement. She says, if we find ourselves continually drawing fixed conclusions along partisan lines, it suggests that our red-tinted or blue-tinted spectacles are preventing us from thinking deeply and biblically. So that's number two. Number three, self-diagnostic question to, to ask yourself, which social media posts make me the angriest? We could have some fun go around the room with that one, right? Which social media posts make me the angriest? Are they the politically related ones or the Jesus related ones? If I'm more passionate about legislation than I am the gospel, what does that say about where I'm finding my security? See, we react most strongly when we feel our security is being threatened. Now, I don't know where you're at with all this, but I can only speak for myself. It hits me pretty hard because, man, I, I feel this. I feel this, this natural drift of my heart away from God. And I'm guessing you might feel it too. The interesting thing is that even in a supposedly secular culture, which I think that word is not wrong when it's used to describe our world today, but... but even in a secular culture, people are still hardwired to ascribe a sense of ultimacy to something. Something has to be eternal. Something has to be transcendent. Even when we don't, quote-unquote, believe in the transcendent, 
People treat earthly things as if they were the ultimate thing. And a lot of times it's good stuff. Whether it's a spouse or family or work or money or whatever, all of which are good things, right? But they can't bear the weight of being an ultimate thing because they were never designed for that. That's what an idol is, is is a good thing elevated to the level of the ultimate. You see, there's a fine line between honoring something and revering it. In other words, worshiping it. And this is not a new dilemma either. Jesus and His disciples actually wrestled with this too. In in Matthew 22, 21, uh, the disciples were talking with Jesus and they're, they're asking Him whether Christians should pay taxes to Caesar. Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. So, Christians, fill out your W-2s. But here's what Jesus says to them. Here's how he responds. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Caesar, the the political earthly ruler of the day, and to God the things that are God's. What's he getting at? What's he trying to tell us here? Jesus is saying that both God and country are important, but they're different, aren't they? They have different purposes and roles. The government is there to create a peaceful and just society. It rules with force. It rules with, quote-unquote, the sword as it has been designed to. That's how how God created it, to do its job. But the kingdom of Jesus is aimed at salvation from sin through Jesus' death on the cross. So you see, it's, it's role, and our role is the, the church, and my role as a pastor, your role as believers, is to preach the gospel. That's not the president's job, right? You see the difference here. Jesus is driving at the same truth that the Apostle Paul makes explicit in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Paul says what? But our citizenship, why don't you read this with me? I invite you to read it with me. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. In other words, Christians, we carry dual citizenship way to think about it. We're American citizens, certainly, or whatever country you're from, but that's not our primary identity. First and foremost, we're citizens of what? Citizens of heaven. Citizens of God's kingdom, and His kingdom has a totally different set of values, a totally different way of living than what comes natural to you and me. See, in Jesus' kingdom, we're called to love our enemies those who think differently, those on the other side of the aisle than us, not to demonize them. In Jesus' kingdom, we're called to put others first, laying down our rights for the sake of our neighbor, which means not looking out for number one. The last will be first. We must die to live, right? This whole backwards, upside-down way of the cross, way of, of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, we're called to forgive people, not dig up tweets from decades past in order to shame them, for God did not send His Son into the world to what? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, as human beings, we're always going to come up short in our endless quest for security. 
Because earthly rulers without fail will always let us down. That's not pessimism, that is realism. Whether it's King Saul, who, as it turns out, is a coward. King David, who acts murderously and adulterously. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, right? What what happened to him? He was led astray by the idol worship of his wives. Or the President of the United States, whoever it is. This is why King David himself, and this is interesting because this is coming directly from a king. And what does that king tell us? He says, do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God. Is the God of Jacob your help this morning? The good news here is that there is a king worthy of our eternal hope and security, and his name is King Jesus. See, he always rules justly. He always rules equitably and mercifully. He never loses his temper. He never makes rash decisions. He never takes bribes. He never panders or flip-flops to get your vote, and he never needs to be reelected. And what's more is that this king loved his people so much that he was willing to die on a wooden cross for them in order to seal their citizenship with his own blood so that anyone who believes in him should what? Not perish, but have eternal life. That's a different kind of king, isn't it? I don't know any earthly ruler who has done that. If you have your copy of the story, I invite you to raise it up here right now so I can see. Anybody have their copies of the story here? Yeah? Well, if you have the, the cover, on the cover of this story, there's this beautiful illustration. It's kind of the, the graphic for the whole series. You can see there's what? There's a, a crown here, right? A crown of a king. But if you look closely in the background, you'll see that there's actually another crown behind it in the shadow, and that's a, the crown of thorns. You see, that was the price that King Jesus was willing to pay to bring us into His kingdom, to provide us with the peace and security that we so desperately crave. Here's what Chad Bird says about all this, and I think it's, it's so good and it's so hopeful and encouraging. He says, in the end, all worldly powers and kingdoms will be reduced to nothing, will sink, will be no more, but the kingdom of Jesus will have the last laugh. A laugh of joy and shout of happiness, for the punchline is always the same. Christ is risen. He is risen for us. That in Him we might have life and hope that will never pass away. May we leave here today knowing, not just in our our heads, but deep in our bones and in our hearts, the deep peace and security that only King Jesus brings. And may we seek to help others find peace in Him as well. Would you pray with me? Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.